Hi, and welcome to The Connected Generation. My name is Nikia Anani, and I'm your host. This week, oh my God, <laughs> I was joined by just an incredible gentleman, Emmanuel Asuko, who is such an inspiration. I mean, today he's a financial advisor and he's a TV personality in the UK. He's an advocate for financial management, wealth management, financial freedom. But it was just amazing to have him on because we didn't speak about what people see. We understood and unpacked his back journey, the journey to where he is today and the critical events, critical factors that shaped him in becoming who he is, which is a man that flourished against all odds. He grew up in one of the poorest boroughs in London, yet aspired and rose through the ranks in Barclays Bank to become the youngest financial advisor in the UK. Isn't that incredible? This is having started off as a cashier at the bank and he rose the ranks against all odds. But it wasn't by chance because he was extremely intentional about his vision, as he says. We all have sight, but we don't all have vision. And Emmanuel had very strong vision for his life, very strong mindset, and strong pursuit of excellence in all that he did. I don't want to spoil it. It's like I'm spilling the tea before the show begins. So I want you to listen and enjoy. We unpack his journey. Then we move on to talking about why it is in the Black community we haven't seen as much generational wealth, the role ecosystems and group economics can play in uplifting the macro community, and how and why have we not seen as much Black entrepreneurship as we can do. So yeah, I won't spoil it. I'm done. <laughs> Enjoy. Hi, Emmanuel. Welcome to The Connected Generation. Hey, Nikki, how are you? I'm great. I'm great. How are you? Yeah, good to be here, man. I'm honoured. I'm honoured. I'm excited. <laughs> this is going to be a fun conversation. So yeah. tell us who is Emmanuel and how did Emmanuel get to where he is today? Good question. So I'm Emmanuel Sequel. And yeah, I'm a financial advisor, TV personality, financial coach, all things finance, money. Yeah, that's me. My parents grew up in Nigeria. They're from Aquaibum State. So they moved over to London. And I grew up in a place called Tower Hamlets in East London. For those that don't know London, Tower Hamlets is probably one of the poorest boroughs in the whole of London. Very deprived. And mainly, and it's one of the weirdest boroughs because it's actually predominantly Bangladeshi Asian is the predominant people in there. So when it came to growing up and racism and stuff, I never saw it because mm. white people were the minority. So every and everyone at that time I was called to act black. So Asians act black, the white people act black. Everyone acted black. Do you know what I mean? So there was there weren't no real racism like when I went to school and stuff like that growing up. Although it's the poorest borough, we got one thing which is Canary Wolf in Tower Hamlets. And so obviously Canary Wolf, for those that don't know, is the financial centre of the UK and obviously in London. So imagine growing up in your council estate around poverty, people don't have money, and then look out your window and you see Barclays, HSBC, JP mm. Morgan, all these buildings are all the biggest, all, all the biggest banks in the world are literally sharing the same postcode as you, the same area code as you, yet 
living a completely different life. And for me, it was about, I want to be over there. I always tell the story and people probably tired of hearing it about how in my house, if you left the light on in the kitchen, you're finished. My mom will <laughs> shout out the house. Iman, who left? Like she will shout out the house. Like it was an offense. You could get beat for leaving the light on in the kitchen. Yeah, I would look out my window at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night and see all these buildings and they got a hundred floors and all the lights are on. Everyone's gone on. And in my young mind, it told me that, listen, there's money over there. I can't mm. even leave one light on in the kitchen. These men have left a hundred floors and gone home and everybody's still okay. So that was like, I've got to get over there. And I could mainly see the HSBC building, the Barclays building. I was like, I've got to get over there. Long story short, but basically by 22, I became the youngest financial advisor in Barclays in the country. I got to go to the top floor, look back at my estate so high up, I couldn't even see my estate. But when I looked through that window, I realized that you can put your mind to something. You can have a dream, have a goal and put your mind to something and you can make it come true, even with all the odds against you. I didn't have the mm. best education. I didn't have no big brother, no help, no support. But mm. focus, goals, a dream, determination and God, it happened. And so that's how wow. I got to start. And then I built up. And you know, when you're in an environment, you just want to grow. So I was hungry. I wasn't like, okay, I've made it. I was like, no, I'm going to be the best. My dad always told me, you got to be the best at whatever you do. If you're mm -hmm. sweeping the streets, you better be the best road to. Whatever you're doing in life, you need to be the best. So I was like, I'm going to be the best financial advisor. And I kept growing and growing and going higher up and higher up. And as you get higher, you deal with more high net worth people, more mm -hmm. people. So now my minimum client has at least two mil cash. That mm -hmm. doesn't include their houses. They have to have at least two mil disposable cash that can be investable. And I look around and realize I'm the only one. There is nobody, not just black, but nobody from my environment. There's nobody from a council state. There's nobody from a normal school. Everyone's gone to well-educated, gone to great universities, got great degrees. They've had a, a wonderful upbringing. And I said to myself, how come on Sunday I can sit in a church of 500, 600 people that look like me, but during the week I can't see one of them? <laughs> that is the question. And so that... for me, I said, for me, I've got to change it. I've got to change it. I'm a big believer in being the change that you want to see. Wow. And so I got made redundant and I said, I'm not going back. And that's when I started on social media. I started posting videos and just educating people about finances, money in my own way. And before you know, I got put on a TV show. And since then, it's just blown. It's just blown. Wow. Emmanuel, there's so much I want to ask because... You said you grew up in Tower Hamlets and you could see yeah. Canary Wharf. You could see HSBC and you could see Barclays from your house. Yeah. Chances are you were not the only one that could see that. Chances mm. are your neighbours and your classmates, they could see the same place, right? Yeah. So the inspiration wasn't sufficient to mm. get you where you are today, right? Mm. You kind of spoke to the mindset. Like, you yes. know, can you elaborate more on that? I feel like you jumped the story. You went from the beginning <laughs> and yes. you got to the end. And I want to know yeah. the in-between. Like, I want yeah. to understand that mindset. How did you get to that point that you were so determined mm. that I belong there and I'm yeah. going to get there. And then when I got there, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the best that I can be. Yeah, you know, it's funny. What you said is so true. I'm a big believer in we all have sight, but we don't all have vision. And hmm. I think, 
there's a big difference. Someone will see wood and someone else will see coffee table. There's a big difference between having sight and having vision. And so for me, I feel like, like you said, we could all see these buildings. Everyone could see them. They're really high up. If you mm. lived in the area, you could see it. But we had sight, but, we, but people didn't have vision. I had a vision of seeing myself beyond my situation. Mm. I feel for a lot of us, we see where we are and we define ourselves by the situation that we're in. Mm. I never... I never, ever, ever accepted that because I don't have the best grades or because I don't have rich parents or because I don't come from a certain background that these things were not for me. I feel for a lot of us, we will accept that, oh, you know, that's what rich people do or that's what people that go to this school or have this education or from this background. I was like, it's for me. It's for me and what is mine, I will go and take. And so I then had to put in, I always tell people, it was then about sacrifice. So. I always got just passed. I always just passed my test. I was that guy. I played sport. I played basketball and rugby. I thought I was going to be a sports star. So I didn't even, school wasn't even, but obviously you got African parents. You know how, you have to at least try. I've always, you have to try because they're on you. They're on your case. So I've always just aimed to just pass and get by so that these parents can leave me alone. But to pass my qualifications, I had to get, so first of all, I had to get in there. So I always missed this part. So I got a job in Marks and Spencer. So for people that don't know, Marks and Spencer's is a, a kind of posh supermarket. Mm-hmm. And then I got a job in Marks and Spencer's in Canary Wharf. So I wasn't in the job I wanted to be in, but I was in the area. I was mm-hmm. going to the location. 5 a.m. I had to be there 5 a.m. I got 5 a.m. I had to go in into a supermarket whilst I was studying, doing my degree in accounting and finance. I used that. I was there for a year. I used that experience to get a job in Barclays as a cashier. So I got a job as a cashier. Now, I'm no longer in Canary Wolf, but I'm now in the company. So I've worked in Canary Wolf, which the dream was to be Canary Wolf in Barclays or HSBC. So I've now worked in Canary Wolf and now I've got a job in Barclays as a cashier. Remember, the cashier is the, the lowest, the mm. lowest level. And so I got the job as a cashier, working part-time, and I was very blessed to have a mentor who was my branch manager. And I always tell people the importance of mentorship. You mm. see, there are things that people who are older than you will see that you will never see because you haven't lived yet to experience. Mm. And if you want to fast track your success, you will learn from those that have gone before. I feel for, especially as a young generation, we so think that the older generation haven't got a clue. We forget all the lessons that they've learned and all the mistakes that they've made that they can teach us so we don't make the same. And I'm a big believer in mentorship. So this, I've got a mentor, my branch manager, and he taught me, if you're on time, you're late. I never understood that. I never understood what he was saying. I was like, what do you mean? If I'm on time, I'm on time. So what he was trying Mm. to say, and I learned it later on, is for you to be early, you have to prepare. You Uh see, when you want to be early, the night before, you have to think, what time do I need to wake up? What train do I need to catch? What are the things I need to do to make sure I'm on time? Now you are going into your day. You see, when you arrive on time, you have let the day, you're going with the day. You're going with the flow. And so when they talk about being, if you're on time, you're late, what they're saying is, is actually the preparation. You want to grab hold of that day. And so you prepare that day. And now you come in and work at your time. And so what I did was, is I, I moved my clock. I tried to get everywhere half an hour early and I set my watch. These times it's old school. It's watch. There's no phones. I'm, not using, I'm using watch. And I set my watch half an hour early. So I was getting everywhere one hour early. One hour early. And when I got to the branch one hour early, who was there? My branch manager. 
And so now, because I've listened to him, he's now giving me knowledge. He's now teaching me all the things I need to be. And I'll cut the story short, but what I'll say is, is that what happened is, because of that humbleness, because I chose to listen, the lessons I learned from him, I became, although I was a cashier, who is the lowest level in the branch, I became the most important person in that branch. The branch wow. would not hit the branch target if I was not in. If I took a week off, the branch would suffer. And so sometimes we look at our position and we say, mm. oh, I'm at the bottom, so I'm not important. No matter what position you play, make sure that you're vital. Mm. Make sure that whatever position you play, you are vital to the organization, you are vital to the company, to whatever structure you're in, because there are benefits in being important. And so what happened is, is that when I finished my degree, that's when Barclay said, what do you want to become? And I said, a financial advisor. I chose. I could have become a branch manager. I could have become, I chose what job I wanted because I became vital and they didn't want to let me go and work for someone else. This is incredible. Your story is just, there's so much here. The piece you said about when you arrive on time, you're late. is such a mindset shift because when you arrive on time, you haven't prepared your mind. There's no intentionality. And you're literally just going with the flow as opposed to being very intentional and preparing. And preparation yeah. is life. And there's so much more that you said. You spoke about the importance of mentorship, the yes. humility. And yes. you said something that was so profound about position isn't as important as being vital, being yes. influential. Influential, and yes. that influence, mm-hmm. not being so obsessed about that title, I'm the CEO or I'm the branch manager or I'm the yes. whatever, but really owning that mindset. So even if you are the cashier, you have mm-hmm. to have the mindset of a branch manager, influence people around you. Your exactly. story is really, really powerful. Thanks. I want to know more about the role of your Nigerian origin and culture. Yes. What yeah. did that play in your story? How did that influence? You mentioned your dad always impressed upon you, work hard yeah. and do your best. Yeah. What other kind of cultural lessons did you learn that you can see directed and influenced your money or what kind of values did you take from your... Um, yeah. I always think it's different. I'm the oldest child. So, you know, in culture, there's so much responsibility. So like mm-hmm. where my friends after school, they could mess around, even if they were oldest child, but being Nigerian and being the oldest child, there are certain responsibilities that are put on you. There are things that you can't do that other people can. So after school, I couldn't hang around after school. I had to go and pick my sisters up from school and then take them home and then boil rice. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? So that when my mom and dad come home, food is ready. These are things that like, I remember on weekends when my friends are out playing, I used to have to iron everyone's clothes. So I'd iron my uniform my sister's wow. uniform, my mum's work clothes, and my dad's shirts. Every Saturday, I used to sit mm. there. It took me four hours, and I never complained because mm. this is just culture. This is just discipline. This is just part of it. But what I did, it meant that I wasn't on the street with a lot of my friends who would just be hanging out and doing nonsense. I had things to do in my house. And also, I'm a mummy's boy. Like, a lot of Nigerian men will, t- will, be, will tell you how much they are a mummy's boy. Mm. We are very close to our mums. Our mums... Is very important to us. And I'm the only boy. I've got two younger sisters. So me and my mom are very close. So my passion to make sure that I can change, do things for my mom, meant that I understood the responsibility of making money. And so I knew that I had to become something because I knew what I wanted to do for my mom. 
I knew what she'd done for me. My mum became a dinner lady. She used to work in a government job, but when she had us, she had to stop. By the time she come back, they're using computers. She was using typewriters. Mm. So she had missed it. Do you know what I mean? Because she wanted mm. to look after us. You know, at that time, here in the UK, a lot of Nigerian parents send their children away. I don't know if mm. you know. They send their mm. children away to go and live with white families. Foster parents, yeah. Foster parents. That was the culture at that time. A lot of people were doing it, but my mum refused. She was mm. like, no, I'm going to stay. I'm going to raise my children and I'm going to sacrifice. So she took a job. She used to do hair and do all these other things to try and quit, to make money. And then she went back to become a dinner lady once we were older. And because of that, she ended up getting arthritis in her knee and having to have a whole knee operation. So the sacrifices my mum done, but I remember as a child, like I, like I said, I played basketball. My mum would sweat money to try and buy me, even though she didn't buy the right trainers, at least she tried. She would pay for me to go to basketball camps. At that time, we're like a hundred pounds. It was a lot of money. I can't explain, like a hundred pounds at that time was like a thousand pounds now. And she would work hard work extra shifts, do hair, do all this other stuff. So for me, my culture and wanting to honour my parents, but especially my mum, meant that my mindset for success, I wasn't going to say, oh, I'll get serious when I'm 25 or when I'm 30. No. The second I was 18, I had to get a job. Listen, I always tell people the story. My birthday is the 27th of May. And I had my birthday, everyone was smiling. The 28th of May, my dad came into my room, knock, knock. Emmanuel, if you don't get a job, you will come out of my house. <laughs> he said it straight. No blinking, no. I had one day to be 18. After that, I had to get a job. That's culture. Other people, like, it was like, no, there's no man. He's like, you're a man. And hmm. There's no man you're going to be up in here. I always tell people that like, I used to, you know, like in the supermarket, there's these big cartons of orange juice. Like mm-hmm. I would have my dinner and I would, instead of just pouring the orange juice into the glass, I would just take the whole carton and take it upstairs. My dad is like, you can't be drinking juice like this and eating and, and you're not paying, you're not contributing, you're a big guy now. So culture plays a big part. But then also when we talk about being humble, hmm. I feel like my culture allowed me to be humble because we have a respect for authority and for the people in power and mm-hmm. people in the higher positions. Now, sometimes that can count against you, but for me, it helped me because I could respect my branch manager in hmm. a way that maybe other people will think I'm the same level. It's just hmm. the title. I could respect because I grew up with understanding there's a hierarchy. There's a level of respect that you have to pay to people. And hmm. so, again, I feel culture helped me in that situation. Wow. And then you said when you were growing up in Tower Hamlets, it was yeah. mainly Bangladeshi yeah. black people. There weren't many white people. You didn't really experience yeah. racism. How did that yeah. influence your life? You know what? It made me look at life different. So I never felt fear. I never walked the streets feeling fear. In fact, if I did feel fear, it was for other black people that I felt fear from. And that was making me understand that that was the media. I used to sit in a bus and, you know, you put your head by the glass in the window and look down. And if the wrong people are getting on a bus, you'd get downstairs and you'd get your way out. You would always have your head on a swivel and look where you're going and put your phone in your underwear. Do you know what I mean? Just in case hmm. anything happens. This was the environment I was in. And I feared black people. I feared Hmm. my own. But Hmm. I had no reason to. It was the media that made me fear myself. Wow. That's so, so, so powerful. So let's flash forward. 23, financial advisor in Barclays. And then over the years, you rose the ranks and then became a TV personality. And now Hmm. you are passionate about people achieving financial freedom. Tell them more. Yeah. 
So imagine being 22 and now you're giving financial advice and some of the clients you're speaking to are millionaires. And so a millionaire is asking you what to do with their money. And you're 22, you didn't even live. You just fresh out of uni. And so what I did was I always had conversations with my clients to find out their journey. How did they get here? And mm. after a while, you see a pattern and you see that actually a lot of the time it's either their parents or community or things that were around them that enabled them to have a platform of success that we just don't have. Because even when we do make it, we end up being very, either being very quiet because we don't want to let people around us know we made it because we don't want them to feel inadequate. Or we may feel scared that if now if we let people know that we've made it, now they're going to come and ask us for money all the time. And so because of that, when you want to look for a role model or you want to look for someone to reach out to, to say, how do I get there? How do I cross this line? You haven't got anyone that looks like you to give you the advice. And so for me, it was really important to not just give financial advice, but give it in my voice, the way I speak, the way people that come from where I come from, the way that people that come from where I come from speak, Uh because actually now they can relate. And so I broke it down. So I always tell people I break things down in ways that people that come from where I come from understand. I was Mm. talking about group economics and how I've worked with a lot of Asians who are big in property. And when they buy property, they buy three at a time. So three people will put money towards one property. All three will get on that mortgage and then they'll save again until they've bought three properties and then everyone can have their own. And that's how how they build. And that's why they've got properties and so forth. and, And it's their thing. In the UK, and speak to most Asians and the properties, it's a normal part of life. Mm. Whereas for us, it's such an achievement to buy a house that, you know, we have to do that Instagram and post it. And I don't really see that from other communities as much because it's standard. It's very normal. And for me, I wanted to help make that normal. And when mm. I talk about group economics, we're like, oh, I don't trust this person or they might steal my money. But I'm like, you lot will all group together and put your money together to buy bottles in the club. You know, and then you're all posing with the bottles for pictures, like it's the like you've just won a football match or something. You will group together to go on holiday. You know what I mean? You know to group your money when it's you'll group together, buy a car, and then you will share the car. One car, hmm. five men are sharing it, taking turns. You don't know when to group together to stunt on people, but you wouldn't group together to buy wealth, to build assets, to get ownership. And hmm. so for me, it's about us. Who nobody's explaining it in that way. And so for me, it was about using my voice and and my experience to try and help people understand the mistakes that for us are normal. Yeah. And that's another thing. If you don't know you have a problem, you'll continue to do the same. Yes. We are only just realizing here in the UK about the foods that we're eating and the fact that it leads to diabetes and all of these other illnesses and high blood pressure and all of this. We're only just understanding that over the last maybe five or six years. Before that, we were eating the food and not feeding the way, but wondering why people are getting heart attacks and strokes and all of these type of stuff. And so if you don't know you have a problem, how can you make a change? And so for me, it was about helping people identify and understand the problems so now they can make a change. Wow. (laughs) Wow. I want to ask, why do you think it is that in the Black community, we've normalized, you make a bit of money, you become quite frivolous and splash it? As opposed to, like you said, we've normalized group economics for things that are not lasting, really. Or yes, yes. We haven't yes. normalized group economics for generational wealth. Why do you think yeah. we're predisposed that way? I think it's a few reasons. I think one of them, especially for Black people in the UK, and I know it's very much different in the diaspora, 
But yeah. I think for black people in the UK, number one, you are judged. So I feel like I always talk about slavery and saying like there were black people in the fields and there were black people in the house. Mm-hmm. And the one in the house always used to feel like they were better than the ones in the fields. Mm-hmm. But both were slaves. And it's very important for us to understand that both are slaves. You might get a slightly better treatment, but a slave is a slave. And for a lot of us, because we feel judged, we feel like, oh, if I wear certain things or drive certain cars or go on certain holidays, I'm one of the ones in the house. I'm not one of the ones in the field. Either way, a slave is a slave. And then until you have ownership, you will always have to report to the owner. And mm. for me, I feel like for a lot of us, we feel that if we buy these clothes or we buy these things, people will look at us different. They'll know that, oh, there's a difference between me and that guy. You know, I got dope. But we still have no ownership. So really and truly, mm-hmm. you're still a slave. Okay? Mm-hmm. I think also there's a thing of we are targeted as consumers. Look we're at targeted. anything. We're targeted. We're targeted. No, we're targeted. Yeah, we're targeted as consumers. If you look at, for example, TikTok, when you think about the dances that go viral, they always stem back from us. When yeah. you think about the latest clothes, they always stem back from us. When you think about things that, for example, the Kardashians do, that people then rave about, they always stem back from us. Hmm. We are trendsetters. We make things cool. When you think of, you know, when we talk about rappers talking about Cavossier and all these, mm. all these stuff, and then when you find out this one, was, I can't remember, when Jay-Z found out that the people were racist, I can't remember the bottle that he used to buy or whatever, then he decided to create his own. Mm. And now that company's out of business. When it comes to consumerism, we make things cool. We understand we're very marketable in regards to making brands and we're very much comfortable being consumers. I always talk about the fact that, you know, we will go to these shops and happily spend in these shops and never think to ourselves, well, if I spend most of my money in a shop, why don't I own shares in this company? Mm -hmm. People tell me, man, I don't know where to invest. You're investing every day. You are. You're just investing as a consumer instead of investing as an owner. And so it's about that mindset shift and understanding how we can change it. But for me, I feel until we get this comfortable with being consumers, until we say, you know what, actually, I don't want to spend my money over here. I want to spend it in my own community, like a lot of communities do. And in the UK, we talk about certain communities, the money goes around 11, 10, 12 times before it comes out. Mm -hmm. In the black community, it doesn't even go around once. Now, there may be an issue in regards to business, and having mm-hmm. enough businesses in different areas because, again, we are very much focused in hair and, do you know what I mean, these types of businesses that are very important, but mm-hmm. we have a lot of options when it comes to those things. And we need to start thinking about creating businesses to fill the gaps so we can actually invest and use our own companies because it's very important to do so. But these are the issues that we face. I don't think we would travel out of our way to go and use a black business. Mm. But I definitely think we would wake up really early in the morning to go to a sale at a supermarket or superstore or clothes shop. If Louis Vuitton were doing a sale, which they never do, but if they decided to, I'm sure people would go out of their way to queue to buy those items. But we wouldn't have the same energy for a black business. No, you've said so much. The role of community, ecosystem, supporting each other and the statistic you said on the black community and the black dollar and black pound in the UK. Yeah. I was watching yeah. the documentary on Netflix. I can't remember what it was called, but it was a rapper that decided that he was only going to spend his dollars on black produced goods yes. and services. Yes. And essentially he ended up not eating. He was hungry. He couldn't find anywhere to live. He was sleeping on the park bench, not even in his car. And yeah. 
he gave a statistic that in the US, in the Indian community, when they spend dollars, it stays within the community for 24 days. In the white community, 23 days. In the black community, six hours. Wow. Six hours. And he was saying exactly what you were saying, is that there are not enough black-owned businesses. Historically, in about 50, 60 years ago, people used to have this consciousness of buying black and going to black supermarkets. Not just hair, not just barbers, but actually renting black landlord. But these days... We've moved away from being, well, in the US, owners of business to going up the corporate ladder. We've neglected Black entrepreneurship. You know what? What you just said is so important. I think about even in my career, when I've met other, there were so many amazing, like doing my job, I've met, I mean, so many amazing Black people. But the reason you want to hear about them is because they work in white organizations. When we are really talented and really good at what we do, even if we have our own business, we tend to get bought and then emerge into other communities' businesses. I don't want to say we sell out, but I understand when you work hard for something, when someone offers you the money, it makes sense. You've worked hard for it. That's your dream. I remember the person, Killer Mike, when he was saying, talking about how even going to school, how mm-hmm. we would take our kids out of the hood, but actually you with that mindset, your kid needs to be in that school because those other kids need to be around kids that think different, that have parents that think different. And actually we need to work together. And I know they talk about, in America, talk about actually the issues of segregation, how actually the ending of segregation led to the ending of the power of Black businesses and, yes. and actually our money coming away from the Black community and going towards others. Like you said, Black landlords renting in certain areas and so mm. forth. So it's crazy how, you know, we want freedom, but we want it at their price and their cost. And we need to start saying, actually, what's most important? Because mm-hmm. I'm thinking beyond me. I'm thinking about what world do I want my children to grow up in and, mm-hmm. and be in? And so even when we bought a property, we said, you know what, how far out do we want to go? Do we really want to go out into the nice suburbs where actually when our kids go to school, then they're going to be the only ones, mm-hmm. the only black people in their school will be their siblings? Mm-hmm. Or do we want to try and keep them around? And it's hard. It's a hard decision. That dilemma is horrible. <laughs> that <laughs> dilemma is horrible. <laughs> it's a dilemma for every black person that becomes successful. Yeah. And I always wonder, what does that do to us socially and culturally? You know, on either side, right? And it's it's down to your values and your philosophy, right? But for instance, when we moved to the UK, my parents decided that the quality of the education was the most important factor. Yeah, yeah. So I ended up being one of the only people of colour in a school of like 1,000 girls. Wow. And I do wonder, what did that do to me? What Mm. would it have been like had they prioritised that diversity or that inclusivity exactly. over. But it's a horrible dilemma. And you know what? Yeah. I don't know the answer. <laughs> no, that's right. You just got to do what you think is best, isn't it? And, mm-hmm. and pray for the best. But these are the type of things that we have to go through. And again, I ask myself, do other communities have these questions? I think a lot of other communities, they don't have these questions. They don't have these issues. I think because they build their communities. I feel hey, like we, come on. we don't build our community. We socialize together, we go to weddings, uh, we go to parties together, but do we nurture our community? I don't believe we do. Even in Tower Hamlets, I remember I went to my aunt, well, I say my aunt, but she lived in the estate opposite mine and she was close to my mum. She took us to a Saturday school type thing and we went swimming. And then when we finished, there was these Chinese people. And I remember Tower Hamlets is mainly Bangladeshi, then it was white, then black, and then other. Mm. They still 
went and did math lesson. They found themselves and they still did math lesson, English. And when I taught math, because I sat with them, they're not talking what we taught. They did lines and mm-hmm. this is ancient history. Forget what the education system is teaching them. This is what their culture has taught them throughout that they're passing on. My parents wouldn't even teach me my language because they thought it would mess up. It would affect my learning of English. Jesus. Same here. And I grew up in Nigeria (laughs) for the first nine years of my life. (laughs) It's the colonized mind, honestly. The impact of colonization and slavery, we're still feeling it till today. Yeah, Mm -hmm. definitely. We are still feeling it today. No, Emmanuel, this has been super amazing. I don't even know. It's been like a sermon. I should have gotten my notepad. (laughs) Taking down notes and what have you. So just to wrap up, I want to know a little bit more about the people that you serve and how you help them. Yes. What we do for the people is really, number one, I always tell people, I try and give as much content as I can for free on my social media. Because I understand paying for something for a lot of us is new. And I say that because when I used to sit down with clients, it used to cost minimum £3,000 for a meeting. £3,000 for a meeting. And I understood the barriers to entry. So when I started online, I started at like £200. But £200 for someone that's never paid for advice is £200 too much. Too much. So I understand that actually this is new. You paying to get financial advice is new. And, And remember now, with the way banks are, because they can't get commission anymore, they don't offer financial advice to the masses anymore because commission got stopped. They have to charge a fee and they know that people won't pay the fee. So now they focus on people with typically 100K plus. So anyone who has less than 100K, you can't even rely on your bank for financial advice anymore. So where do you go? Hmm. You go online. And there are so many Forex gurus, so many options and training and crypto gurus that will just help you lose your money, the little money that you have. Mm -hmm. So I try and offer as much as I can for free as just general basics, fundamental things that you should know. We do seminars and workshops that people can attend. We're doing a lot of them. Obviously, COVID stopped that, but now Mm -hmm. we're getting back out. So hopefully towards the end of the year, we'll start that back up. I offer one-to-ones to to clients um, and I offer it differently. So there's Mm telephone-based. I've been doing it a long time. So for some people, it's just a quick call. I can tell you what you need to go and do, answer your questions and off. For other people, they really want that financial MOT where they want to sit down and say, look, these are my finances. This is where I'm at. What am I missing? And I always tell people, forget about being worried about what you know. Be worried about what you don't know that you don't know. (laughs) That's what you need to worry about. This is why rich people pay for advice because they are not concerned with what they don't know that they know. They're concerned with what they don't know that they don't know. The unknown unknown. Unknown, unknown. Not the known, unknown. Not the known, exactly. Uh And we are focused on the, oh yeah, I know I need to pay that bill or I need to set up that direct debit or I need to open a savings. No, don't forget that. What don't you know about? What exists that you don't know about? That's Uh why you pay for a specialist in individual fields. You pay for a specialist to tell you about, what am I missing? What are the things that other people are doing that maybe I don't know that I'm doing? And that's the financial MOT is to really say, where are you at? Where are you trying to go? And maybe what are you missing or what are the things you need to do to ensure that you get there? And so that's how we help people. Obviously, I'm a full financial advisor. So mortgages, life insurance, pensions, investments, all of that stuff we can do as well. But I do a lot of non-advice stuff where it's just Mm -hmm. about trying to help people understand what they need to do, how they can sort out their money. And then once you're ready, I can then help you 
buy your first house or buy a property or start your investment portfolio and all of these type of things. Incredible, incredible. And how can people reach you if they want to get hold of you? Yeah, so the Instagram is the E-Man Effect, so the E-Man Effect UK. That's the Instagram, Twitter. Um, Emmanuel Suko on LinkedIn. Um, the website is www.emmanuelsuko.com and you can email me at team at emmanuelsuko.com. Incredible. I've so much enjoyed this conversation. Learning about your journey has been fascinating and really inspirational. Really, really inspirational. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for all that you do for the community, all that you do for the diaspora as well. You know, just reaching out and getting it out there and all you do for businesses and business owners. So these are the conversations we need to be having and for Mm. using your platform to put these things out there so people can really, especially in the diaspora, can really understand the opportunities and things that they can do to change their lives are so important. So thank you for your commitment to the community. Thank you. Hey, 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 hey. You know, in that episode, I was literally taking notes (laughs) because there were just so many nuggets that Emmanuel just kept on sharing that I was like, oh my God, this is just so profound. I'll share with you a few of my favorites. We all have sight, but we don't all have vision. Hey, isn't that the truth? And I think this is particularly important in a family enterprise setting where you can have sight for your life as an individual, but lack vision. But when you're now trying to rally multiple people to move towards a common goal, there must be a common vision, right? So it's not just the importance of vision as a team, but a shared vision that everyone believes in. So there's almost a right-sizing at every moment in time because times change, people change, family changes. So you need to always check in on that vision. Then he said, if you're on time, you're late. Hey, to be early, you have to prepare. And isn't that so, so, so apt? I came across an African proverb the other day where They say, if you want to know the end, look at the beginning. So you must start with the end in mind. You must prepare. If we're saying we're building legacy wealth, it's not something that at the age of 60, it happens by chance. It's something that from inception, building your business, building your career, you're very intentional about it. There must be preparation as a family and start to have conversations about that. And then my absolute favorite, when he said, why he started being an advocate for financial advice was that hearing financial advice in his own voice was important. Affinity matters. Representation matters. I am all for diversity. I'm a diversity champion, but affinity matters and representation matters. There's some things that you will never get because you're not part of a certain social group, right? And it's important that we feel represented, right? And that those that are seeking to help us have an affinity towards us. So affinity matters and representation matters. I believe that we all have some level of privilege and in different measures and in different ways, right? I think the word privilege has come with a lot of negative connotation in our 21st century world, particularly with conversations that stem from Black Lives Matter last year. But I do believe that we all have privilege and it's to look at that privilege and see how can I pay it forward to ensure that some people are better represented and see themselves in others because affinity matters. 
and representation matters. It gives us permission to be, permission to dream, permission to push for possibility. Thank you guys. Thank you so, so much. I know that between you and I, this is my favorite episode so far. We've done a lot of episodes. This is episode 74, but you're And this is an episode that I will be listening to over and over and over again. It was just so phenomenal. So grateful. Thank you so much. Take good care and God bless you.